Rolling. Welcome to a special edition of the Renegade Podcast. In partnership with Rescue RN, we give you Kickstart My Heart, a revolutionary approach to resuscitation and code blue to take nurses who don't just do what they're told from novice to ninja. In episode seven, our special guest is Renegade's own Dave Perry, trauma and nurse educator. Don't look at that. Don't look at that. I don't care what that says. Don't look at that. Look at your patient. What did your patient look like? That's going to tell you everything. They always try to do better because the status quo, that's not good enough. Nailed it. Renegades. This is the seventh installment of Kickstart My Heart. And we have Dave Perry, who was hidden in plain sight because Dave is on the Renegade team. He's got a vast background in EMS and emergency nursing and like, and loves the obscure. Like Dave, we call him this, the, his nickname is a Swiss army knife on the team because he's kind of like master of all, <laughs> but it's a actually brilliant... more like Jack of all, like <laughs> Jack of all, master of all kind of. Yeah. Right. But uh, Dave's the kind of guy that if he doesn't know, he'll find out and master it momentarily. Just hang on a second. <laughs> uh, so Hold on, we, I got that. Uh, yeah, we're so excited yeah. to have him. So we just paused the thing to give Dave the rules. So you all didn't have to listen to, to the, to the scenes, the back, what do we call them? The background scene, behind the scenes, behind the scenes. Uh, so Susan's going to kind of guide us and you're going to ramble on and impress us with all your pearls of wisdom. And uh, we'll be the peanut gallery kind of cheering you both on in the background. So yeah. without further ado, Susan Davis, take it away. Oh, wait, you, hello. Hello. Right, wait. Kickstart my hardest installment seven. Take one. I just had to do that. So first of all, I would like to say, Dave, welcome, welcome, welcome. And that was a lovely introduction, Karen. I would like to suggest, however, that being that we and he and I have a core background with ER, all of us are those master of many uh, or jack of many, master of none. However, Dave, we did not get a little bit more. Can I get a little bit more of your background so you could share with our listeners why you're here? Because we know you're kind of a bad to the bone ER background, but I'd like to know more myself. So give us a little rundown and then I'll jump right in. Sure. Um, my name's Dave Perry. I currently live in Vermont. Very, very, very rural Vermont, uh, meaning like the closest gro- like grocery store is about 35 minutes away. Uh, my background started in EMS back in, I think, 2003, 2004, something like that. Um, Completely on a whim, I wound up in an EMT course with my brother who was trying to gain points for his ideology tech thing. And so he was like, hey, do you want to do an EMT course? And I was like, sure. So I did it kind of on a whim, found myself on an ER rotation. And I still remember to this day, my first patient, he was uh, pretty stoned, ran a circular saw off of a two by four across his thigh. And most people would probably be like, Oh, and I was like, this is so cool. Like watching the doc stitch together and <clears throat> all this trauma protocol going. And and so I, I wound up doing EMS, volunteer EMS and fire in Alaska for a bit before that. I did have to move out of uh, Alaska to go to nursing school, straight out of nursing school into a level three trauma, middle of nowhere, northern Arizona. 
everyone drives about 100 miles an hour there on that freeway. So we had to stabilize pretty much everything. Uh, fast forward about seven or eight years after some travel, a couple of bigger trauma facilities, I wound up as an educator in Sacramento. The cool thing about that was I kind of bridged the gap back to EMS. I became a kind of dual role ER educator. And out in California, they have these base hospitals where you give uh, orders for, for field medics and all that. And so I ended up bringing that back for our hospital, which had dissolved a few years prior. And then I moved to Vermont, sight unseen. And now I don't do ER medicine, but I'm still passionate about cardiac arrest and all that because I'm kind of a dating geek when it comes to that world. So. And I apologize, my dog is deciding to uh, be friendly right now, so I'm just going to scare dogs, away. Dogs are welcome. You're kind of a what kind of geek? Data geek. Data. Data. So <clears throat> with my with my role in Sacramento as a base coordinator, I ended up doing all the CARES registry entries. I went uh, and attended a resuscitation academy seminar. I worked pretty closely with the EMS folks in that area. And one of the first things that I, I saw when they started presenting some of their data was these guys in the field had better survival rates for cardiac arrest than we had in the hospital. And I'm like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Like, they don't have much at the back of a rig. I've been at the back of a rig. You've got limited tools. You've got limited space. You go to the hospital, you have all the toys, all the people, all the resources. Why are we not doing it as well as they did? And that's exactly why I wanted to be part of this podcast, because Susan hits the nail on the head. It's because we do crap CPR in the hospital because nobody's comfortable with it. So, anyways, oh my. We'll, we'll get into that. <laughs> Dave, 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 you secret gem. Okay. So, wow to the wow, wow. So, okay. I did get my, I do have my medic license as well. And I did also happen to kind of roundabout become an EMT before I became a medic. And, okay. So, even playing field here. This is great. You're speaking my lingo. <laughs> and okay. So you should know that with my trauma background, for those of you listen to the other five, six or however many six, though, right? So my background was trauma, ER, medic, a little bit of flight, la la la. And here, here's the bottom line. All great things in resuscitation tend to come origin or originate from, I'm going to say the military, and then it makes its way to EMS. And then, skirt. I'm not quite sure where it goes from there. Pretty much, it detours the hospital. <laughs> it, de it detours the hospital, <laughs> and, and it's like, you know, Dave, I, I've worked with EMTs and medics both in the ER, in the trauma ER, and, and in the American Heart teaching. And it, again, like you said, wait a minute, they're leading the field, they're working in the back of the bus, they have extremely limited resources, and yet they're killing it when it comes to cardiac arrest. They're killing it when it comes to practice, procedures, training. It's their calling card. I, 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 and then I'm going to top this off, a little cherry on top before we get started. And it's, again, you could be a lay person in the community. You can run an AED in the mall or at Disney and rock it. Mm -hmm. You go in the hospital. And, you know, and, and again, my intent, I will, full disclosure, was never to make what we do in the hospital look down on us, but, or, 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 but at the same time, we're not doing it. And the entire world, the whole world has recognized that in hospital cardiac arrest response is not where it should be for a gazillion years. And we just, we just named it. So welcome to the conversation, Dave, what a perspective I'm so pleased to have the 
program that I created, Code Prep, which is the basis for this program, which we're not talking directly about Code Prep. It's more about why did Code Prep come about and, and what does it do versus what it is, right? So Code Prep is a code preparation program that I created that blends the learning that I discovered in pre-hospital medicine is, is working with what's not working in the hospital. Short, brief, repetitive, hands-on drills, pit crew style, including a visual acuity, which is like MCI, mass casualty incident, right? If there's an MCI, they do green, yellow, red. Anybody on the totem pole, EMT can, can pass out green, yellow, reds or blacks tags, you know, on, a, on, on an incident. And so if we're, if everyone can triage outside of the hospital, how come everybody can't triage inside of the hospital? Inside the hospital, we do a mock code per quarter per regulatory standards, but no brief hands-on practice in any type of a continuous manner. Nobody handles the defibrillator. So the topics are this mindset. What does it mean to have a code blue mindset? Pre-hospital, in-hospital, ICU, ER, rapid response, medical, surgical. We fondly refer to this conversation throughout this entire conversation as the hamburger of a hospital, the upper bun being the ICU, the lower bun being the ER, and then everybody in the middle being the hamburger. Second conversation, if we get through it, will be um, the visual acuity. So signs and symptoms of deterioration. Why are we missing it? Why is it so difficult? They look People are sick or not sick, right? Dave, I get crazy about this acuity in our world and the acuity both in the buns and in pre-hospital. Acuity means sick or not sick. It doesn't mean the same in the middle of the hospital. Then there's your emergency equipment. How comfortable in the hospital are they with it? We know they're not. In fact, they're quite scared. Then rescuer one, two, and three, who are they? I say, dare I say, everybody is rescuer one, two, and three. I do not care what your roles are and I don't care what your job description is. And then in the end, it's putting all together. What can we do to keep this going? What can we keep this to be ongoing? Why is it so hard? Two to six minute drills, no bitch zone, get them in, get them done, hands on the prize, save lives, go home, be happy. So that's that's how this conversation is going to roll. Cool. <laughs> and, and we'll start with mindset. In your experience, Dave, as ER pre-hospital, when you were in the ER, were you able to uh, respond to inpatient codes? Uh, yes. I'll, I'll just reference my last five years. It was in a, a big, a smaller hospital out in Sacramento. Uh, typically, we, we the ER staff, we didn't have enough people. We didn't have enough staff to go respond. And so we did at different times. It was like a code team. And then I think they assigned like an ICU nurse to it at some point. And then when I rolled into my educator position there, I worked very closely with the inpatient educators. So I started going to all the in-house codes. And that was where my eyes started really opening up because there's a big difference, obviously. And I've watched a couple of these podcasts already and seen it through the lens of the ER nurse. Like by and large, most ER nurses can figure out a code. Not, they're, they're, not all are great at them, not all are bad at them. Some are really, really good. But they all can kind of stumble through it. It's a lot different when you go to an inpatient setting, especially a nurse who may not have ever done compressions on a human being or actually physically touched that, you know, that glowing red button outside of a, you know, ACLS megacode or something like that. And so it's it's kind of a whole different ball game when you when you start thinking about it from that perspective. Uh, so I, I kind of ran the gamut from, you know, just just near setting 
you know, codes to to responding and, and assisting for a couple of years in house and really building that nurse the nurses up there to to do better with code response. So, which was a huge focus of ours for education. So, so that being said, please describe what it looked like when you arrived. I mean, you're you're, you're suggesting or say, saying you were the ER educator. You're working with the inpatient educator, so you guys knew you had an issue. Yes. What were oh, yeah. you seeing prior to you diving in and giving this education? What but, what was but, it like when you arrived? Or before uh, that, so that Antra doesn't get conversationally constipated. In case you did, did you I have was, something to add? Well, I was just going to say that even before that, well, or after what Susan just asked you, what were you seeing, and why do you think it was like that? Why did why did you think you were seeing? What Thank you. you. I'm, I'm glad you asked that because I did take a couple of notes. I'm kind of a data geek, like I said. So I did have a couple of things that I wanted to discuss. And one of them is exposure. If you've never, and I kind of, re, you know, referred to that at the, at the end of my last sentence, if you've never done CPR on an actual human being, it doesn't feel anything like the, the practice dummy, right? We've all, everyone here has done CPR on a, on a real human being. It feels weird. It feels awkward. It feels like you're hurting them, even though you're not going to make them any more dead, right? You're, they're still dead. And so I think from a response perspective, a lot of the nurses had just never even been in that world before. And so it was all foreign. It was all brand new. And so with that, without that mindset, how do you expect someone to ever be comfortable kind of diving right in if they've never had that, you know, had that kind of ability to, to respond to a code situation? And that's a, that's a difficult thing because if you've only worked, say, on a telemetry floor, hopefully codes don't happen all that often in your unit. But when they do, that's when, you know, it's kind of the, the low volume, high risk, right? It's not going to happen very often, but it's going to be someone who, you know, is not that high acuity, but all of a sudden they've gone from a, you know, just a, a you know, standard telemetry patient to, you know, needing CPR, needing advanced life support. So. so, so Dave, that being said, because you are a data guy, I will throw out that I studied code prep in both my master's and my doctorate and my doctoral project. I actually had to be revised because it ended up being in the middle of COVID. So I was able to run my performance improvement project uh, testing code prep. And it, they ended up testing it. And it was in an acute care hospital here in South Florida. It was on a COVID unit. And so that was brilliant, right? I was really pleased with that data because who, who even knew what the heck was going on with COVID in 2020, early 2020. But I'll just tell you of the respondents, which were much lower than I had anticipated, but there was still a pretty good turnout. And of them, based on what you just referred to, 54% had never witnessed a code, 65% had never done CPR on a human, and 84% had never handled the defibrillator. Those are big numbers. <laughs> Those are huge numbers. And for clarification, my, my data collection was pre-post self-efficacy, basic life support self-efficacy. All I wanted to know is how good did they feel? Zero to 10. Zero, I do not feel comfortable with this skill at all. 10, I'm a rock star at this skill. And, and the questions follow the basic life support chain chain of command or cha chain of events. So um, including using the um, analyze function on the defibrillator, which is a big thing for me. I teach that big time, right? No harm, awesome. no foul. So, all right. So, so, so it seems to be universal, regardless of any nurse we speak to, nurse slash medic, that the, the mindset we all seem to agree on that part. Antra, Karen, we down with that? Done. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so interesting that Dave, you pointed out, you pointed out that, you know, the difference between the mannequin and a real person and the fact that it's so different that it's foreign. So it makes me think that even if you're practicing on a mannequin and you feel like you have some confidence level because you are practicing, maybe in the ER, ICU, rapid response, uh, that then when it happens in real life and you don't, haven't had your hands on a real person ever, like then how does that sort of affect the kind of resuscitation you're doing? So it feels like we haven't really touched on this and that's a little bit of a gap from. Yeah, well, and before you answer, Dave, because add this part to it, because you just made me see when you said uh, the guy was high and cut through his leg with a what kind of something the, the saw circular saw circular yeah. saw and you're like oh this is so cool see even amongst er and icu people because i was that kind of person too like never having done compressions before would was not a problem for me like i didn't go oh this is so weird you know like i remember my first time and i was totally into it and i was like it's like i had been waiting my whole life to do compressions, <laughs> you know? So there, there is variability even among the acute, acute care specialties about the level of comfort. I have, and I have had an allergy to risk aversion my whole life, you know, and I, I kind of an adrenaline junkie, but there's people who aren't like that. So with entrees and my secret sauce there, proceed. So I, I'm going to try to keep this brief because I really want to keep kind of moving forward with this, but I'll sum this up in a, in something that I kind of, and I think I've even talked about it with you guys outside of, of here, uh, but I, I came up with this idea of the Johnny on the spot nurse. And I, I'm sure somebody has a, a great name for it. And I know in, in one of the previous uh, Kickstart My Heart podcast, you guys referred to the nurses who just, they're the shit. Like they, they know what they're doing. They strut into a code. They're, they're, they can put that 24 in a thumb, like they can, you know, do whatever, <laughs> like we all know that nurse, we've probably all been that nurse at one point in time. And that's great. But what needs to occur is that nurse has to relinquish control at some point and bring others into the orbit. So the way that, and I, I could go off on that forever, but the way that I'll, I'll kind of paraphrase here is, is to Andre's point, Whenever I would respond to an inpatient code, I would always find the people in the hallway who were like, like kind of way back, like didn't want to do anything. They were, they were there to be supportive, but they didn't want to actually get their hands dirty. And I'd be like, Hey, have you, have you done CPR yet? Nope. Nope. Put gloves on. Come on. Come on in. I did that with nursing students. My record was seven nursing students doing CPR on a single person. Now the nice. person survived, but like it was low survivability. I was monitoring the whole time. You know, we were watching, making sure they were do doing a good job. But I'll be damned if they didn't get out of that room, go back to post, you know, post-clinical and, and have not only a story to tell, but, but the moment they entered their whatever world they went into as a nurse, that fear factor is gone. They've done compressions on a human being before. And so to the outsider, they might say, well, why do you have a nursing student there doing that? Because I want them to get that exposure. I want them to feel comfortable when it occurs in real life, because it, it will. You work in a hospital guaranteed at one point in time you'll be doing cpr at some point so dave dave i think you're my brother from another mother 
<laughs> Rockstar, a corporation of seven students, because to me, that's what students are for. It, when I was, when I worked in the ED, if there was a student and there was a code, line up, line up, you guys are coming in. So I'm so with you on that. And I'm also with you, Karen, because me, I was, I was the crackhead going in, right? I, I, I it was, it was my thing. Like you just, you know, and it's funny because when that ER, that trauma ER gets this loud hum because there's the guy with the leg, you know, and, and you know, <laughs> gunshot wound to the leg in the hallway. You're like, dude, that's put a bandaid on it. Give me a break. And you're, you know, <laughs> cardio verting in the hallway, naked granny and the other, you're like, oh, life is so good. <laughs> and then when it gets that loud hum is when my particular brain works better. Mm -hmm. The slower life gets and slower is I become like a complete potato. Like mm -hmm. it is a non-functioning thing for me. So we're speaking the same language, but so that mindset is huge. And Dave, you touched on something. And again, I, I know you have points to make and I, I you have such great points. So if 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 we want to, if you have notes that we don't get to, bring them back so we can get them in. But that hierarchy thing is important. So those, those who do respond, we've talked about this in, in a handful of our podcasts, uh, Sarah uh, Lorenzini, rock star, rapid response team. She was certain when she arrived to teach to those who were there in a very cool, collected, you're absolutely part of this manner, not this hierarchy. I'm better. You guys suck. Get out of the way. Because mm. that's a big deal. That's that less than thing, which is really the primary reason why this program, my program code prep was, was created. Not only because I didn't care for what I saw in the response, but I didn't care for the behavior that was being exchanged for those who we, who we were there to help or, or actually just get out of the way. And then I really got to thinking like, how can this possibly suck this bad? Like, these are smart people. <laughs> these are really smart people. Have we done this because we're critical care and all that? Or have they done this by not stepping up? Or is it a combination thereof? So moving to the next topic would be the visual acuity. And it is the signs and symptoms of deterioration. Do they feel empowered to ask for help? Do they feel empowered to call that rapid response, call a met call if that's before rapid response in your system? Or do they have, are they, are they listening to their intuition on what the acuity actually means, sick or not sick, not the number of tasks that a patient has, but are they sick or not sick? Can they reach out to their charge nurse or feel comfortable calling the physician or do they not? Cause they feel that awkward, less than I'm not sure than kind of gig. So visual acuity again, created from MCI green, yellow, red, sick or not sick. It's thumbs up, thumbs down on RPMs respiration, perfusion, mental status, good or bad. It's pretty simple click cut. I don't want, I'm not, I don't use numbers. I use a few words. I'm even, I even, I, it's kind of where Wong Baker meets MCI. You know, what <laughs> do are we going to do? Do you want to put context around that for you know everybody else? Oh yeah. <laughs> for the, the Wong Baker gig. Yeah. So anyway, that's the pain scale, you guys, for those who who are children, usually it's in children, or maybe if they don't speak your language, you can use it's the smiley face. I'm feeling really great. All the way to 10 is like you've been run over by a truck and your legs are severed. Uh, yeah. That's kind of maybe, a, maybe, a, well, in my world, it's five. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so Wong Baker is happy face, bad face, feeling good, feeling bad. And then MCI green, yellow, red is sick or not sick. Okay. Yellow, hey. yellow, hey. you got about a minute to figure it out. Red, if you don't figure it out, they're going to die. Thank you. Asking for a friend. Not at all. Not at all. So that being said, we're missing the signs and symptoms of deterioration. Uh, there are early warning systems out there. Hospitals spend gazillions of dollars on them, right? They feed them into the computer and then they're supposed to help us and alert us to the fact that this cardiac arrest is imminent anyway and or respiratory or whatever emergency. So I say 
that they're only as good as the timely information that's fed into them. So, so my, the visual acuity that I created was an across the room, 10 seconds or less, sick or not sick. What do you think? Love it. Uh, it reminds me, my first EMT instructor, his mantra was, I'll only see seven things in your career. And I'm like, no way. <laughs> and he goes, you're going to see big, slick, little sick, not sick at all. Big hurt, little hurt, not hurt at all. We're dead. Yes! That's it. That's all you're going to see. And it kind of blew my mind, but I've always referred. That was, I don't know, 20 years ago. I think I took that first course. I love that. And when- Wait, say that again. Yeah, do it again. Yeah, yeah. Big sick, little sick, not sick at all. Big hurt, little hurt, not hurt at all, and dead. (laughs) So simple, right? (laughs) Years. So a really good point, Susan. I'm going to kind of lean off what you had mentioned about the across the room acuity check. When I teach new ER nurses or when I've taught new ER nurses, they always get so focused on the stuff that we have, the IVs and the monitors, and the this and the that. And I always say, I always take the monitor and just tilt it away from them. Don't look at that. Don't look at that. I don't care what that says. Don't look at that. Look at your patient. What does your patient look like? Tell me in that 10 second, that 10 second acuity check, do they look good or do they look bad or do they look like they might be getting better or getting worse? Then you can look at the monitor because they're t- if they're in front of you talking or breathing to some degree, that monitor is not going to tell you a whole lot. What you are seeing in their face, in their work of breathing, in the, the RPM that Susan mentioned, that's going to tell you everything. And that's hard to teach though. That is hard to teach. And I feel like the newer nurses are maybe a little bit more technology focused. So that is maybe a gap that needs to be addressed. <laughs> I have a well, I have a funny story. You want to hear a funny story? Like when I the first charge nurse position I ever had, I was also the IV nurse. So and we had a bunch of students and orientees on the unit. So it was just like fresh meat central there. You know, it was a fresh meat market. And I remember going up and then coming, like going up, putting the IV, coming back down. And I come into the unit and there's like three students and a pretty new nurse that was kind of minding the students in a patient's room with pads on, (laughs) looking at the monitor going, what should we do? And the patient is in the bed looking at the (laughs) monitor and i'm like hey folks what's going on baby comes i'm like anybody check for a pulse (laughs) (laughs) or how about we just start with responsiveness i don't think and i'm like hey mr whatever miller you know i'm like hey how you doing he's like i just want to know what's going on (laughs) that is the best yeah just to drive home the point look at the patient (laughs) Oh my gosh. So well done that, that, and that, and you know what? And that's the beauty of this kickstart your heart podcast series is there isn't a nurse on the planet that doesn't have a story like that slash 10, 20. I mean, good, bad, and ugly code stories are good stuff or, and sometimes not so much, but still see that is a case where thank goodness they didn't Well, actually if it had an analyzed function, he would have been all right, but we, they didn't, they didn't know. And thank goodness they were too afraid to use their electricity. So, so don't that always means, use Edison medicine, <laughs> right? 
Oh, we had somebody else who referred it to Edison Medicine. I think that was Jeff Schiller. Was it? No, no. I think it was. Uh, who else said that? Listen to him. I only listen to two. I, was, I, I listen to all of his. I believe it was Sarah. You know, I just have a comment too about the we've we've kind of talked about this throughout all of the this whole series. It's just this idea that like we don't use the common sense that we've been given, right? And and we're so focused on advanced cardiac life support or look at the monitor and all the IVs and all of the and then we're like completely forgetting about the actual patient sitting in the bed. And it seems so simple when we're having this conversation, just the four of us, right? But when you get into a room and it's like Karen described, it's like all of a sudden the common sense just flies out the window. What is up with that? Think, sorry to interrupt, but it just made me think of the the just think of the code card. So I don't know, I don't know the hospital that you have worked in, but just the the sheer presence of a code card is filled with ninety five percent useless crap. Right? There's a couple of things in there that could actually save someone. There's a couple of drugs that might might actually do something in there, and the rest is just all this extra stuff. And it's like, why is it so complicated? Figure out how to use that the defib on the top. That's your biggest, that's your biggest bang for your buck. <laughs> Everything else is just secondary. So there, how did we get from, you know, ABCs to all this like crazy complex, like, I don't know. What did Dave think? Yeah. I mean, for every response, like, you know, there's, what is it? Physics is like for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. That's not the case with a hospital RCA, right? For every response, there's an equal and, and opposite overreaction. And so they complicate everything. And now you have to have all this extra stuff and all this extra regulation and all this extra, make sure their pain is addressed and they're potting and blah, blah, blah. And it doesn't, it takes away from the, doing the actual critical stuff sometimes. Or the nurses get to go so task bogged down that they're they're scanning 19 medicines not looking at the fact that the patient stopped breathing in front of them. It's it's very, yeah, I'm sure it took a lot to get there. And it's not one particular thing, but oh, I think it's there. Dave, that makes me want to circle back to exactly what you were saying about the visual acuity. You know, I and and what I mean by that is when I teach it, you said, I don't know how you teach it. It's kind of hard to teach, but I, I teach them, you know what sick or not sick looks like right now. You are a mother, a father, a sister, you're a daughter. And we all have homes and families in whatever manner that looks like, but we're around our closest people and they get sick. And when someone, you know, and love looks sick, you, you, you're, you react, your body reacts. So I begin with that. You know, when I say, listen, you stop looking at all this stuff, just look at them. I mean, that color, <laughs> that's a bad color. That's not a normal color. Or if your patient's sweating, okay, you better be sweating. That's a problem. <laughs> Something's fixing to go down. So, and then when I do the green, yellow, red, I'm like, green's like, yeah, 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 whatever. And the yellow, you're like, mm, ooh, hmm. And the red, you're like, oh shit, right? Okay, so there's your whole education right there. That's how we do sick or not sick. That's how, I mean, your body already responds and tells you. So that leads right into the next thing, which we touched on just in the last couple of minutes, you guys. And that is the infamous crash cart and defibrillator. And and to your point, Dave, I teach that everything you need to save a life is on the outside of the crash cart. Yep. I don't even let them get into the top drawer. Yep. I don't even let them get into the top drawer. 
let's not talk about that. Nobody knows how to get into the top drawer because they don't get to practice. And it's a funny lever. <laughs> I, true or not. Yeah. It's true. Or you're going to have to call pharmacy to replace the egg lock. Right. So therefore it. you can't, you can't break into it because it's a funny in out a horrible thing. And then you break it and then, oh my God, it's got to go to pharmacy and then it's got to be desanitized. And oh my gosh. So nobody ever gets in it. I don't even get it. Don't let me get crazy about what's in that top drawer and how we don't even know how to open the boxes on the right end. If you open it in the wrong end, have you ever tried to open a box in the wrong end, the middle of a code? I was teaching just two days ago. I know I'm getting off, but not really. And I was like, okay, so listen, when I tell you that the other end doesn't open well, I mean, you're going to try to be like, oh God, oh God, they're all looking, looking, I can't get it open. I can't get it open. You're going to be like, you know, with your teeth because the one side pops right open like a little sweet little gig, but the other side is not opening. <laughs> And you pop the thing out and there's all these pieces. If you haven't practiced it, you're screwed. Anywho, my topic is everything you need to save a life is on the outside of the crash cart. The famous defibrillator, everyone says, Hail Mary, oh Lord God, please no, not me. A bamboo bag that never gets out of the bag. And if it does, it's still collapsed, not attached <laughs> to oxygen. The backboard that's on the back of the cart, 99.9% of the time doesn't get off the cart and under the patient, mushy bed, mushy head. Let's talk. Okay. Pads, plugged in, unplugged in. Oh, I sure hope they are. Um, Muppets, man. I, yeah. I, <laughs> so here I here we are teaching. Literally, back pad, back board, turn it on, place the pads, push the electricity. Sound easy? Not so much. When I'm talking about this topic, I'm always like, listen, guys, this is like a pot of chili, right? We've all made chili a hundred times, but it turns out different every single time. But these are the same exact ingredients. So we got to put this pot of chili together again and again and again and again and again. So that it doesn't matter where you end up in the rotation, rescue one, two, and three, you got this. But circling back around to my craziness to save a life. And by the way, if I may say, all the research in the entire planet only supports compressions and electricity for saving a life, right? All the evidence for that top drawer is like, wah, wah, wah. try again, Sam. Maybe next year. Right? Yeah, what's, what's can, your data? Data Dave. Data Dave. <clears throat> so Susan, you obviously know about the Resuscitation Academy and the one of the lectures that they did called Drugs Are Bad was absolutely hilarious because it was like this crazy flight trauma doc guy who just literally took apart every single drug that we gave. And he's like, sure, maybe it'll help a little bit, but what's really going to help with the person? What are you trying to achieve? And there, and so it, it kind of boils back to the data stuff. And I know you guys had the Zoll guy on here. And I don't know if you, if you spoke too much about the data stuff, but the data says do compressions between 100 and 120 per minute. 110 is perfect. Use a metronome. You can, you can download the app, right? And then get them into a shockable rhythm, right? Because that's where survivability comes from. Survivability doesn't come from asystole. It's statistically very, very low. Survivability comes from getting them into a shockable rhythm. And the only way you get them into that shockable rhythm is by doing good quality CPR. That's it. So to to Susan's point, everything that you need to save a life sits on top of the cart. That's brilliant. Love it. And nobody uses backboard. They, they wipe it down afterwards, but it never gets used. <laughs> How about that? How about that? I mean, and it's just the truth. So, so we'll, 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 we'll zoom in a little closer to the dreaded defibrillator. So, you know, oh, I, I should have my, my, anyway. So I teach 
that there's three steps to running a defibrillator. Now I'm telling you, people are scared to death to touch it. Um, oh, and, and, and again, I always get a little crazy about the fact that somewhere in our nursing careers in, in hospital, only the charge nurse is the one who handles the defibrillator and, and, and does the checkoffs, you know, like once a day it's checked off, but then I had oh, to laugh yeah. because everyone's like, Oh no, no, the charge nurse is going to be the one who runs the defibrillator in the code. I'm like, but she only really knows how to turn it on, drop it down to 30 joules, test it. And then click all the boxes. Yep. 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 Oxygen's good. <laughs> papers on here. Yep. 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 I'm an expert. Anyone got a code? <laughs> so, but they didn't realize is that when I'm training chargers is they don't know how to do it either. So the beauty, 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 especially with the way defibrillators are moving um, these days is that they literally, and they always have, they've always had step one, turn it on. Step two, analyze or charge. Step three, shock if, you know, shock if it says shock or not. If not, get back on the chest. Game over. And to your point, Dave, we can give enough epi to this table, to this microphone and get a pulse. I'm pretty sure that they're not, it's not going to get them to the, I mean, I always say getting them to the uh, ICU is cool, but getting them home is way cooler. So, you know, by the time we're getting to those drugs like that, the bird's on the bottom of the cage. Give it, give it all you got. So anyway, to, to uh, handling the defibrillator other than once in your experience, usually it's once a year in competencies other than your BLS or ACLS class. And you actually handle the defibrillator in your BLS or ACLS class. And if you do, is it the one that you're used to using in your environment or is it a training one on an iPad? What do you say? Chances are it's going to be, I mean, I, I don't know your the, the area that you work in. We, we never, we had like a, cause everything, I mean, most hospitals I've worked in uses all R series, which is pretty universal, right? You can, you know, we would use the uh, little plugin that we could do rhythms and things like that. But to, to your point, nobody's comfortable with that. And then, and then, you know, they're like sitting there, like thinking that they're going to hurt the patient. Well, if they're in a lethal arrhythmia or they're dead, trust me, that button's not going to kill them anymore, right? You're just trying to kill them less or trying to bring them back. And so again, to kind of what I had spoken about earlier, I always try to find that person. Have you ever shocked someone? No, perfect. Come over here. You're with me. I will walk you through this. You're going to, I'll be with you the whole time. And, you know, then people want to do like, you know, they want to all get clear and jump like 18 feet away. And you're like, it's, it's not going to arc to you. Okay. Like when they teach it in EMS and back ambulance, you got nowhere to go. You get off the chest, like two inches and then you go right back on the chest. So getting that comfort level again, is that exposure piece. And then trying to rely less on like iPad things. Cause if it doesn't look like real life, you're not going to know what it's like in real life. If you train on a, on a training zone, that's exactly the same. Then it's going to at least be familiar. You know, it'll be a different setting, but it'll be familiar. Yeah. Dave, I, I, you know what? I feel like often these days as I'm pushing, starting to, starting to really push code prep out to the world. Cause I'm not asking anymore. You know, I, I run into really, really high tech people with a lot of high tech stuff and a lot of high tech ideas. And I'm like, yeah, but here's what I needed to do. And they're like, yeah, no, it doesn't. I'm like, okay, but if you don't do what we're asking to do first, your stuff doesn't matter. So I know you guys are awesome and rockstar and you create all these wonderful magical things, but I'm looking for a product that does what I needed to do. So I'm actually working with developers so that it's it's smoother for, for what it is that I'm wanting to do. It needs to be really hands-on, the exact same stuff, exact same stuff and durable. So we can do it again and again, really. I mean, when you're rolling old, big, hot and sweaty, this stuff needs to roll and be 
pushed and moved and, and I, it can't be fragile. You're like, we're running a code here. <laughs> so we've all had, so, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I say that all the time, like, you know, that the pads these days, you know, anterior, posterior, and they, everyone, it, it was, I say, there's context clues. You know, you guys, one of them has a number one on it. And one of them has a number two. And I say, context clues, which one do we going to place first? And they're like, <laughs> the front one, which is number two. C. Yeah, yeah, D. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And then, and then they get so nervous. So that being said, we'll, we'll, we'll move along as, we, as we're starting to round out our hour here. But the next topic is rescue one, two, and three. Who's rescuer one, two, and three? I say everybody. Um, if you have a basic life support, that's the only requirement to 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 play my game. And it does not give a crap what your job description is. Neither does the person dying, to your point, Dave. So a lot of hospitals and certainly larger healthcare systems have code roles, big code teams, code blue councils, and there's a lot of data being collected. And that's wonderful. And they have code roles and they have code badges. And so I'm often asked, well, how is this going to, how are we going to, how are we going to blend this with what we already have? Because we have code roles. And so I go to a lot of efforts to reassure them that rescue one, two, and three happens before your code team arrives. And if by goodness sakes, one of the roles are not being done when they arrive, well, then do it. <laughs> that would be perfect thing for your code role people. And I'm not cutting down on code roles. The research shows that it works in many, many, many ways. So I'm, I'm not against code roles. It's just what I have learned and through my research was those first two to six minutes. And you could be on hospitals. Let's, 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 how many times is there a code number two, right? Often. So who's showing up and when, and how long are those BLS response teams going to be in charge of that situation? So I train rescue one, two, and three is everybody. Rescuer one recognizes the problem, calls for help, begins compressions, not in just any day compressions, but jam up rockstar compressions. And then rescue two is the closest one to that person. Her, here's the call. Their primary job is to A, support rescue one as the CPR coach. Tell them to take a nice deep breath. Calm yourself. Let me help you adjust the bed, adjust the stuff, adjust the room until the crash cart arrives because rescue three is the one closest to the crash cart, brings it in. And then it's back to the pot of chili. Backboard, back pad, pads on, push the button, boom, repeat. That's not what we see, Dave, but what do you think about that? Love it. Because typically, and, and you know, I've run, I've run the gamut with hospitals. I've been in, I think the smallest was like a 22 bed critical access all the way to, I don't know, like a 300 some odd, you know, big old trauma center. And there's big differences. You know, if, if you're in a big trauma center, you get these teams that show up and you get these awesome groups of people to show up. And if you're in a smaller facility, and you have a small group of people who shows up, they're going to get taxed pretty quickly. Then God forbid you have another code, which happened all the time during the pandemic, you know, two or three at a time. Then you really stretch your resources then. And so identifying those roles is key, but having a good team leader is probably the most important thing. Data backs it up too. Zoll defibrillators can tell you exactly how depth, how, how deep you compress, how long you compress, how much recoil you have, and it will show you in data. The, the fire department that I referenced at the beginning of the podcast, they do all their data from that. And they've proved no matter how big of a badass you think you are, no matter how good a shape you're in, after two minutes, you suck at CPR. You have to be switched out. But we always have those Johnny on the spots, those ER techs or those big ER nurses or whoever else. We're like, I can keep going. No, you can't. 
you can't, you can't, you can't. You're going to get worse at it, and you're not going to get them into that shockable rhythm. Want to know why? Data proves it. So having roles, having a good team leader, having clear, you know, having it all kind of thought out. Because again, that first two to six minutes, in six minutes of CPR, you should have gone through three rescuers, three three compressors. If you haven't, something's gone wrong. Somebody's not keeping, you know, keeping good time. So those are huge, like huge elements for survivability from just the, the data perspective of what keeps people alive during a code or what gets them into a shockable rhythm. Uh, I think, it, again, it goes back to what you were saying, Dave, which I find so interesting, and this hasn't actually come up in any of our other podcasts, is like when I think about the codes that I'd been involved with, I can remember surgical tech who was on the CPR the entire time that we were in the code. And, and, and again, it's that, that real world practice. Like it was a medium sized facility. It was an operating room, right? We didn't do a lot of codes, but again, like that gap between, even if we do practice codes on the regular, right. As a, as a hospital, as a unit, it's that, what does it feel like to do compressions for, you know, five minutes versus, you know, 20 or 30, right? Like, and to your point of it's not effective if they're doing it for longer than a certain amount of time, it's not going to save the patient. So that's a really interesting thing. I think that we're addressing in this podcast is that gap between, yes, we want our Susan keeps saying, why are we not doing these repetitive drills over and over and over again, which I think would be so helpful. I know if I'd had them, I would have felt way more confident, but then also what does it feel like to, to do compression? on a real person and, ha- you know, and switch and have a, a role where somebody's like, you're done. You've mm-hmm. done enough compressions. Now we're switching in somebody else. Like, I just think that's so interesting. And there's some, there's it feels like Susan, a gap between what's, you know, what the reality is and, and, you know, getting good practice. I don't know. No, you're, you're, you're data. 100%. Yeah. The data and the doing, Kieran, well said. So, you know, I work a lot with the Zolar series and I collect a lot of data from the Zolar. I collect it almost on the daily. I actually watch spreadsheets for, you know, in a hospital system right now where the codes are. And I can zoom right to that code and go into that exact Zol and pull out the data. And then whenever I have, this is just kind of right on this topic, but, you know, the hamburger buns will be like, yeah, we had a code last night. I'll be like, mm-hmm. And look at your compression. <laughs> let's, look, let's look at what it looked like. You know what I see way too fast, way too deep for at least three, four rounds, way too fast, way too deep or way too shallow and way too fast. So if you don't practice, even if you're in the hamburger buns, you get your own epi rolling and you know, I use an ambu bag when I teach about the heart. I'm like, you know, if you do not allow for recoil and you're going like this, you know, nothing's getting in and nothing's getting out. (laughs) It's it's almost as bad as being dead. So Mm -hmm. And that, and the, and the whole, I'm not ready to switch out. I'm all that in a bag of chips. I can keep going. You cannot. Have you ever done a push on your bike or on the treadmill for a minute? You're death <laughs> at the end of that minute, but two, that's huge. So, so, you know, that, that data is huge, Dave, the data from the, from the Zoll, when they can see it and it's color coded, it's extremely helpful. So, you know, to, to that effect, we also bring in the, debrief in, in, in code blue. Now everyone knows the science is there. Got to debrief, got to debrief, got to debrief. Half the time everybody leaves. And ultimately, since we're getting ready to wrap this up, I would like to wrap it up with the debrief because. Well, can we you know, wrap it up with, if Dave has anything to add, do your debrief, but because he's, I'm so curious. 
he really wanted to do this because I'm sure he had things that he knew that people needed to know. So give him give him a, a bit of time to do that at the end too. Uh -huh. Well, I'm not going anywhere. So I, Dave, I'm going to, I should say, I'm going to wrap up my last thought with yeah, yeah, yeah. and then, and then whatever Dave has. No, absolutely, Karen, because I'm not in any hurry. But I, I guess I would just wanted to say that pulling this all around and wrapping it all together in my mind is back, you know, debrief and mindset. They kind of, they kind of go back together hand in hand because if we didn't do what we thought we could do, or we hesitated, or we didn't feel prepared, so we did, didn't, 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 we weren't sure, how do we go home? If the critical care team did show up and made us feel less than, how do we go home? Mm. And and frankly, do we, do we want to come back? So in the debrief, it really is important to say, hey, listen, what'd you see? And I usually say, you know, what'd you see? And it gives an opportunity to say, usually crickets, right? And then I'll say, I'll tell you what I saw great job on compressions, or we, we might've could have pulled the patient a little closer to you, or, you know, let's talk about the pads, you know, they just need to, you know, come down a little, a little bit, but to get that conversation, because half the time or, or, or when we don't have a good code, which is, you know, let's face it, codes are codes. We send people home. I say we, because of lack of training and lack of discussion, we may send people home that ripple effect of feeling less than or not good about and then they go home to their family feeling like they maybe didn't do the best that they could. And that's truly why I'm having this conversation. Again, patient outcomes are amazing, but our mindset and our care for one another in this training to me as a nurse is huge. And so that's why the, besides all the research in the world shows all these things we've been talking about, but Dave, bring us back around to any points that we didn't bring up that, that you had some insight you'd like to add. Cause I'd love to hear. You know, I think we had a pretty awesome conversation. I really like your idea about debriefing for the nurses. And I'll, I'll kind of reference something. My last few years at the in the hospital setting of especially working with the inpatient side and doing just mock codes. And we kind of adopted the crawl, walk, run method. We knew that the nurses hadn't had any sort of mock codes and we knew they didn't have a ton of codes, though COVID did kind of change that. And so we would do these mock codes and we would debrief at the end and they'd go, oh my gosh, that was amazing. And I was like, well, what do you mean? We just, all we did was kind of talk through this and we we kind of kept it low key. We made sure that the, the high level stuff was done. And she's like, well, the last hospital I worked at, if we got something wrong in a mock code, we got yelled at. And I'm like, in a mock code? Like, not to mention if in a real code that happened, that'd be inappropriate, but in a mock code, like where's the learning from that? So there's a fear factor, right? So if you combine a fear factor of doing what's wrong with lack of debriefing and lack of kind of tying it all together because it may it may be the 150th code for that ER nurse but it might be the first code for that you know phlebotomist who who popped in to do CPR cuz we asked him to you have no idea and so the debrief ag agreed it always fell by the wayside i worked really hard at my last facility probably one out of every seven or eight we managed to get because you know just like anything, you know, gets done, they pronounce and poof, everyone's got to go back to their other stuff. But we would try when we could. And every single time we did, the response from everybody was, I'm so glad that we did that. It used to be only with pediatric codes because they were just brutal. But why did, why, why just them? Why not everybody? Because that was still somebody's mom, dad, sister, mm -hmm. brother, aunt, uncle, doesn't matter. And then it was still the nurse at the end who wants something and, and to maybe even have the the open forum to say, you know, 
when I first walked in, I didn't look at them right away or, you know, I, I started, you know, I noticed they were breathing a little bit funny. I probably should have gone and got help sooner. And then you just let them leave it at that. You would never, ever say, well, you absolutely should have, because I guarantee that nurse is done. Like they're, they're, their profession's done. They're not going to come back or they're not going to come back the next day. So you just talk it through. I mean, we could we could probably talk for another hour on different things, but I think that we we hit some of the high level stuff. There's there's not enough exposure. There's not enough training. There's not enough simplicity, which I love what Susan's doing. It's it, it's the simplicity of what we're actually trying to do. All you're trying to do is get the heart from a, a non-existent rhythm to something that you can shock back to something else. Then you can play with all the other cool toys in the code card. Until you get into that, it doesn't really matter. Don't keep giving them epi because your microphone could walk around if you gave it 10 amps of epi, you know. So, yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity to be on here. Um, I mean, you know, let's do it again. Great to have you. I would just like to add one last piece on the debriefing. There is so much learning to be had in a debriefing. And I will tell you that in a debriefing, no matter what it is, in an OR, when there was a mistake, in, in a code, those nurses walk away from that debriefing and they never repeat the stuff that didn't go well ever again in their careers. It's the best place to learn. I learned so much in debriefings and they were few and far between, but man, I learned mm. a lot. So. Yeah, Andra, honestly, you just gave me um, goosebumps. And, you know, what I've been teaching just recently, because I'm, I'm very blessed right now, I have uh, like eight new units in an acute care hospital that I've been working, um, doing code prep in. And I, I you know, the, the, the teams get the modules where they're doing it on their own. And then I train with the coaches. And when I get to this section of the teaching, which is where we're wrapping it up, we've been doing the drills, and then now we're going to do the debrief. My, my latest saying is, I am the permission. I'm giving you permission. So now as a co-prep coach, you are the permission. So it's going to be a culture shock when someone says, all right, everybody don't go anywhere. Good, bad, ugly. What you got? What'd you see? I said, you're going to have to speak up. And so I've gone one step further in this particular hospital that I'm in right now and saying, listen, I'm going to, I, I'm going to meet with the supervisors, the house soups and every external department that I can come up with. And so that they're, everyone's aware so everyone's going to know that if they have my code prep badge on, I don't have one to show you, but they get a little badge bling that hangs on their badge that shows that they're a coach too. And it says, that's your permission to be the one. And also I'm telling them, you know, not only do we need to keep it down in, in the room, but the hallway is like a joke too. Like, I'm like, it's not like a smoking thing to smoke. You need to go down that away and down that away. Like I, I can't even stand the outside the room crowd either. So that our coaches have a, a, an opportunity and a space to say, listen, okay, we got this. And then let's wrap it up with a quick debrief. So that's been my new thing. I am the permission. I'm not asking anymore, Dave, although I'm yeah, so I, pleased you're here. Yeah. We're, we were yeah. going to, I was going to go over to you anyway, Dave. So see what you need to say and end with what would you tell, what do you tell as an educator? Like if this was like your, your last lecture kind of thing, what would you tell to nurses who, I mean, it's a good way to wrap this series up too, uh, with you saying, but what, what would you want them to know um, before you die? <laughs> well, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got as an ER, brand new ER nurse was I was like taking my first patient assignment and I was definitely not ready, but that's just the way ERs are. And the charge nurse looks at me and goes, she goes, you grow up quickly in a broken home. That stuck with me to this day. 
<laughs> Which you ER people, you're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> I think that makes sense across the board with any nursing field. Um, you know, if this was my last lecture, it would, or, or my last opportunity to impart knowledge, I would say always try to do better and don't accept the status quo because the status quo means that I pulled this from your uh, your website today, Susan, nine to thirty seven percent survival in hospital. And I don't even know if that, you know, what, what kind of Einstein criteria that encompasses, that's not good enough. Like that, that, I mean, come on, like we can do artificial AAA graphs. Like why can't we be better at, you know, we can transplant all sorts of crazy stuff. We can, you know, surgically fix everything. We can do all this stuff, but we can't correct a cardiac arrest in the hospital. Like we should, that, we should be really good at that. So never stop and never stop questioning because a lot of, and I was going to ask Susan this because you said like you're, you're the permission, the, the hospitals that you work in, I hope you have the support and leadership because that makes a huge difference. I was lucky in my last place for three years, had one of the best chief nurses on the planet. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll say the best nurse I've ever worked with. Uh, we had the support and the support was to always get better, to always keep pushing and, and to, you know, push the envelope. Question the status quo. Yeah. That, sounds, that sounds like a familiar theme. <laughs> I how I found you guys. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dave. That was fabulous. Really good. So amazing, Dave. Yeah. Thank you yeah. so, Thank you so, so much. much. And yes, there will be more. Yeah. 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 That's why I was like, I was like, get me on this podcast. Come on. I, I want to talk about I this know. stuff. So and you have it. Dave, I'm so glad. What's that? You have a great voice for audio, too. Oh, I don't have a fancy mic, though. You don't need you one. Don't that's need what I'm saying. To, to be part of this, though, because Andre and Karen know, but I don't work in the hospital currently. I work mostly remote running a, a mobile vascular group. It makes me miss <laughs> the hospital setting, but it's good to remember where I was at. Because a year ago, like, I lived and breathed this stuff. Part of my job, especially as the EMS liaison, the base coordinator, you know, I was always working with EMS. We were always analyzing data. We were always doing these things. And I loved every second of it because of, of exact, you know, the exact reason that we're here. We're not doing good enough and we need to be better. Drop. Yeah. Mic drop. Thank you, Dave. <laughs> thank so you, Dave. Thank you, Susan, for yeah. thank you, thank you, for, thank uh, you. Inspire this this series will. I think this will really save lives. I mean, yeah. just oh, you know, nurses sure. listening to to this and and hearing you say over and over again, I am the permission. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Thank you. thank you. Nailed it. Renegades.